0: I'm Bijan Karimi. Welcome to The Reflecting Pool, where my guests and I discuss thesis research, how their topic relates to the broader homeland security enterprise, and what it's like to be part of the CHDS master's program. James Hughes is the assistant special agent in charge of the Rome Field Office of the United States Secret Service. He spent a few years in the private sector as a graduate student and naval reservist before beginning his federal government career, and hasn't looked back. He has been with the Secret Service for 24 years, spending time on the protective detail of two presidents, leading two different field offices, and in foreign postings. He followed in the footsteps of his parents, both of whom were in public service. James came to NPS to synthesize his wide range of career experiences. In this way, his thesis was a natural progression of that initial curiosity. How do you make better decisions by harnessing the diverse knowledge of individuals? We began our Zoom conversation with his explanation of super forecasting. Super
1: forecasting was something that Philip Tetlock of the University of Pennsylvania conceived years ago originally he was looking at decision making for investments he applied it to a different field which was intelligence analysis and this is what really uh, seized my attention this experiment involved recruiting a group of amateur analysts and these were people who had no intelligence background no access to classified information and would present them with various questions about geopolitics, about economics, about whether or not uh, North Korea would develop an intercontinental ballistic missile, questions that uh, an intelligence agency would want to explore. And it designed a competition where this group of analysts would take these questions, research them, come up with probabilistic answers. So basically on a scale of zero to a hundred, what's the probability of North Korea developing that missile in the next year. They would explore this. They would come up with predictions. They could revise their predictions as new information came about, but it was all open source for the amateurs. And they were competing against analysts in intelligence agencies who had access to some of the most cherished classified information available on those subjects. And the the beautiful part is the, the amateurs won. Really what brought me to super forecasting and as it related to my thesis was i was really interested in a repeating phenomenon when it came to lone actor violent my definition of that was school shooters homegrown lone wolf terrorists which was very much a preoccupation a few years ago and assassins which is uh, the expertise of the secret services and i saw a commonality among those three groups another repeating phenomenon I saw was that very often the people who committed these types of violence had come into contact with law enforcement agencies, but the law enforcement agencies wouldn't have investigated them any further. My question was, is that because of legal obstacles? Is it because of a lack of expertise? Because that's usually what the after action analysis would point towards, was that there is some sort of organizational uh, impediment, some sort of blind spot, an organizational bias more in, in along the lines of groupthink that when you're, when you're faced with a lot of false positives, you, you tend to develop a bias that no leads are going anywhere and, and you can overlook the ones that are truly concerning or should be.
0: What is the difference between a homegrown violent extremist, which is what is in the title of your thesis, but then you also mentioned the lone attacker.
1: I really feel like there is some sort of commonality between three different types of violent lone wolf terrorists. School shooters, it's schools, it's malls, it's places of worship. And then the third would be assassins. And it was really my experience uh, with the, the Fort Hood investigation that kind of opened my eyes to the idea that maybe different agencies, because of their specialties, Maybe we're being just a little bit too precise in their detection. Maybe with Fort Hood, because a a joint terrorism task force was looking at that case, what they were defining as a terrorist act may have excluded concerning behavior that the perpetrator exhibited because they were looking for the next 9 11 conspiracy, they were looking for the organized group. To commit a spectacular attack. And maybe we're a little bit less calibrated to detect these very um, particular and, and, and smaller scale actors.
0: And for Fort Hood, Hassan had been in contact with some clerics. He was exhibiting some type of radicalization in his behavior. So detectable was there, predictable, not so much. Help me understand where you see the difference between those two.
1: The distinction I make in the thesis gets a little bit more into the difference in statistical sense. Predictable meaning there's some series of data points that point clearly toward result. All the arrows are pointing towards this person attacking. That is almost impossible to do, at least if you're looking at time and place. There's no such thing as pure security and total security.
0: We always have to accept and manage risk. Or the current construct is that we get the best people together, the smartest minds that know about that topic and they're going to figure it out. But you mentioned earlier in the experiment that was run, that kind of was the genesis for your research, that that's not necessarily the way to go. So how does super forecasting differ from what takes place in JTTFs, those intelligence centers where we're bringing the smart people together? There is a
1: time and a place for very calibrated and very focused expertise, but it leads to a sort of tunnel vision to the point where you're only looking for a very particular type of threat. So where super forecasting gives us an opportunity to do is you can broaden your horizons. Let's let's look at the task force as kind of the first step towards that. To me, the task force, the the wisdom behind that is no single agency has the adequate jurisdiction, manpower, reach, or expertise to handle something that's so multifaceted as terrorism can be, that only takes you so far. Super forecasting is branching that out even further. You can open yourself up to the analysis of a faith leader, a civilian attorney. You can look at somebody who might be in real estate law, but can add a little something to this analysis or might have some sort of sensitivity to a phrase or a behavior that might indicate that this person presents a a threat. There is a place for expertise. I think there always will be, but the cost sometimes of expertise can be certain cognitive biases. Uh, you, You gain an enormous depth of knowledge, but that can come at the expense of acquiring a broad array of knowledge.
0: What if we considered crowdsourcing, looking out, casting a huge net into all kinds of information, all kinds of people? So how does crowdsourcing fit in there?
1: Crowdsourcing to me is different people mash a button on their phone when they think somebody's you know, see something, say something. That's not the application that I was looking for. That type of crowdsourcing is when you're you're looking for the perpetrator.
0: Once you gather information through this process. You write about the potential for innovation is more likely when things are are laid out in some type of structure, and that leads to certain types of unanticipated knowledge. What did your research tell you about that?
1: That's something that I find very compelling.
0: Maybe it's because I've been in government for so long.
1: There is definitely a um, regimented approach to how innovation is introduced. What I like about a concept of a networked approach is that people out on the periphery, on the, on, the, on the outer edges of the network, can introduce new information. The question I wanted to explore with detection of uh, targeted violence is, would that work for something that was very, very small?
0: How can an organization design itself so that those interesting concepts, that unanticipated knowledge, bubbles up? By doing some type of organizational design, people on the periphery or on the outside are able to bring their information in. What should the organization look like to facilitate those new ideas?
1: What I always imagined was that this would not be a replacement for agencies with expertise or task forces, but that it would be an available tool to use in parallel to those existing processes. I don't think you can ever get away from a law enforcement agency being that subject matter expert, not just because of the utility that agency provides in detecting and mitigating and and addressing a threat, but also because of the constitution. On the other hand, everybody in a a society is a stakeholder in creating a, a safe environment. So to have this Operate in parallel, I think, provides an interesting opportunity because it gives people a, a sense of participation in a very particular way in terms of
0: assessing and analyzing. In your analysis, you say, and I'm quoting, targeted violence may be detectable, but it is random and unpredictable. But then you went and ran simulations as a way to evaluate the decision making process. What did you find? When I talk about
1: uh, the randomness and the unpredictability of targeted violence, what I'm saying there is that the time and place for an attack, arguably even the method, are separate and independent. When the Pulse uh, nightclub shooting occurs, I think the next one was in Dallas, I don't think you can reasonably predict based on the Pulse nightclub shooting, that the next shooting is going to be in Dallas. I don't think you can predict that it's going to be on a particular day, and you can't predict that it's going to be done in a certain way. But detectable means that uh, if an individual makes statements or exhibits behaviors, they may indicate that they have uh, homicidal ideation. They may indicate that they desire to, to commit an act like this. What that uh, statement is premised on is the idea that in many of these shootings, people have looked to law enforcement to investigate the perpetrators before they attacked. the The problem that law enforcement faces, however, is that in all of those cases, technically those people have not committed a crime.
0: So they're detected, but you cannot predict To test your hypothesis, you conducted a survey with a convenient sample of 16 folks from law enforcement, fire, health, and and a couple others. Describe the results, how you achieved them, how you analyzed them, and what some of your observations were.
1: I wanted to replicate as best as I could the super forecasting project that Tetlock did, but with uh, this very particular phenomenon of targeted violence. It presents some challenges because for one... The advantage that Tetlock's experiment had was that there there were phenomena that had a very discernible result. It was a zero or a one, so to speak. It happened or it didn't happen. But in these types of cases, there there isn't a, a clear zero or one. So the best approach to that was to take known cases that uh, I knew re- resulted in in a violent act. Take out any identifying characteristics that may tip the hand as to what kind of case the analyst was looking at, and then have them assign a probability as to whether they investigate further or not. And what I found was using a a group of basically members of the Homeland Security Enterprise, I presented them with case studies, and they assigned that probability. And then I was able to analyze, based on the probabilities, how accurate their assessments were. What I found was that In four out of the five, they were better than random or better than a coin toss accurate. But it it did present to me an interesting alternative application of this methodology and that that methodology may present an opportunity to gain some improved analysis threats.
0: In your thesis, you set out to see if super forecasting was a more effective approach to predicting homegrown violent extremism.
1: Did it? In a word, maybe. I can't go any further than maybe. It wasn't so bad that I could dismiss this as a as a completely invalid way of analysis. But on the other hand, there was an, enough accuracy, in, in my opinion, to warrant at least further research.
0: If you believe some recent articles applying algorithms and artificial intelligence to big data is going to be able to identify all kinds of anomalous behavior, whether it's something a consumer is doing, whether it's what's happening in financial markets. How does that concept compare to super forecasting? And do you think that can be used in the Homeland Security enterprise?
1: I'm going to answer first with my gut. I have some real misgivings with algorithms per se. I have problems with them from a pure accuracy point of view. Look, any algorithm is the distillation of somebody's preconceptions, whether valid or invalid by evidence. I love the possibilities and the potential that data analysis can present. And I do love the the possibility of creating a modicum of empirical analysis or objectivity to what otherwise is uh, a subjective process, but I've never failed to recognize that people tend to assign more objectivity to a lot of data analysis than is warranted. They'll use it more as evidence than analysis. And I have a little bit of trouble with that.
0: Living in Italy, you are in the crucible of the COVID-19 spread through the rest of Europe and, and Asia. And it's required organizations to make decisions in a totally novel environment where they're have nothing to draw upon. Are there any observations from your research that can be applied to help leaders make better decisions?
1: Rewinding to late February and early March, when this first hit, it was limited to 11 municipalities. And there is preconception that it was containable. Part of me thought, okay, it's contained, it's up north, it's away from us. Another part of me thought, if it's in Northern Italy, it's likely in Rome too. It's just not detected yet. It's very difficult for elected officials to make those very unpopular decisions. There, I think there is that very difficult leap of faith you have to
0: make. Instead of taking that leap of faith, we have super forecasting. How can we use that concept, that organization to help us do better in the future?
1: Let's think of a way that it could be applied to, to COVID-19. Right now we have... The experts. We have the, the C- CDC, the National Institute of Health, all different types of federal, state, and local organizations. We have universities, we have hospitals, we, we have epidemiologists, all of these experts who are looking at different slices of this and are making very particular forecasts. But there is a tension between the experts. We could take super forecast. you could create the question the number of COVID-related deaths in the United States will be greater than 100,000 by the end of May. It makes me sad to use that as an example. That, there's a pure zero-one phenomenon, and you could take people like you would be, and we could put a probabilistic score on that. So there's kind of a very, I'm painting with very broad strokes, but that's a great summary of why I take super forecasting and contrast it to an established methodology. It really is all premised on taking in a different set of data to analyze the same phenomenon and see if there's a different result. What would you say to a prospective applicant about this experience? I've talked to colleagues in the Secret Service who've gone through this and, and, you know, the running joke is in some ways it breaks you. You never stop wanting that. And after this experience, never been able to see the world the same way ever since.
0: I asked James what class was particularly helpful to him. He said, everyone, whether it was an idea, a book or a conversation, they all helped move his research forward and change his way of thinking. He summarized his experience by saying, he would never be able to see the world the same way again. And that's the kind of thinking we need in the Homeland Security Enterprise. Since the interview, COVID has ravaged the world. As of August, 2020, there are over 5 million cases and 170,000 deaths domestically. Some impacts are readily evident, others may take years or decades to manifest. Our economy is suffering, unemployment is increasing, deaths are mounting, and there are inconsistent policies about what actions to take. These are Homeland Security issues. The attack on 9-11 was the genesis of the CHDS program. This new attack, by an invisible adversary, serves as a pointed reminder that the threat landscape continues to change, and our government needs leaders who can think differently about complex problems, take action, and lead transformational change in times of crisis. I hope you've enjoyed hearing about James' thesis, E Pluribus Analysis, Applying a super forecasting Methodology to the Detection of Homegrown Violence. Visit the Homeland Security Digital Library and search for Super Forecasting to read his research. I'm Bijan. Thanks for coming to the Reflecting Pool. The theme music was composed by Mr. Standfast, and additional editing was provided by James Marsh. CHDS is the nation's Homeland Security Educator and part of the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. For information on the master's, executive leadership, or other academic programs, visit chds.us.